This is Taste for Tenacity, show number 34. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bowtie Advisors. We run the numbers so you can get back to running your business. Welcome to the show that answers the question that plagues students and professionals alike. What should I do with my life? Determine your greatness. Follow me through the pathway of more success. Each week, we interview entrepreneurs. Invest in things that you understand. Professionals. It's just believing in yourself and your abilities. And artists that have followed their pool. You can't be scared to push the envelope. This is what we need from Ben Trella and Otai Media. This is Taste for Tenacity. What is going on, everybody? My name is Ben Trella, and this is Taste for Tenacity. This week on the show, we hear from Rob Dubay. Uh, Rob started his first business in high school selling blow pops out of his locker, and for the last 28 years, he's served as the president and co-founder of Image One, which is one of the top 25 small businesses in America uh, on the 2017 Forbes list of small giants. He's developed an unwavering passion for delivering the X, which is genuine care that drives extraordinary energy, actions, and experiences to everyone, every day, and every time. Rob is an avid meditator of 15 years, the author of a best-selling book, Do Nothing, the most rewarding leadership challenge you will ever take, and the host of the Do Nothing Leadership Retreat and the Do Nothing Podcast. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I was kind of trying to find a way to to open up our conversation in your background, really served it up on a silver platter for me. Uh, you started out by selling blow pops. Did you have a favorite flavor or did you sort of avoid getting high off your own supply? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people uh, are very particular about their flavor. We still have blow pops in our offices. Awesome. And so, of course, when people come in, they look at the big, you know, uh, jar of them and they say, can I take one of those? And then you see them sorting through. Mm-hmm. Um, but watermelon is pretty solid. Okay. Uh, it's always a winner. Um, you know, green apple is definitely one that people are kind of like, you're either a green apple or you're totally not. Yeah. It's a very so, polarizing yeah. flavor <laughs> totally. of blow pops. <laughs> I took green apple. Like, oh my gosh, what is, what is he, what is he hiding? Right. <laughs> So uh, with that, I kind of want to take a step back. Typically, I try and start around uh, age 18-ish, but it seems more like your story starts you know, early in high school. Uh, around ninth grade, you launched your, your first business. You were a freshman in high school. What was it and what really made you think that it would be a good idea? Yeah, well, my best friend and I, Joel Perlman, who is my current business partner, if you can believe that, hmm. um, we've been friends since the sixth grade. Wow. And we you know, loved business early on, kind of unknowingly. I don't think it was really clicking. We just liked that kind of stuff. Yeah. Entrepreneurship back then was not like it is today. Actually, it's considered extremely risky and you know, go get a regular job. Um, but uh, Joel's uncle owned a drugstore, and somehow we'd gotten the idea to um, sell these blow pops out of our locker. Hmm. And so he agreed to sell us the packages of blow pops, the boxes of them at cost. And I think they equated to like a nickel each. Hmm. And uh, we took them to school and we started selling them. We'd walk around, hey, what's a blow pop? Who wants a blow pop? And um, 
Then we had people at lunchtime starting to line up at our locker to buy them. <laughs> because at, they knew. They knew. Yeah, they got to learn that we were the source <laughs> and where to go for it. Yeah. yeah so we, we just loved it. We had the best time. I mean, we skipped lunch. We weren't goofing around like a lot of our friends. Mm-hmm. We were just doing this, you know, quote unquote business, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this is upon reflection, but we realized at that time um, that there was an entrepreneurial bug in us and, and we had to follow it. Hmm. Okay. So now did you, did you sell those, those blow pops all throughout high school or did administration kind of have, have a bone to pick? They did. They, <laughs> they closed us down, but the principal, I'll never forget him. He, he was so encouraging and he gave really good reasons. One being that there's a school store and, and it was pulling business from the school <laughs> they store, didn't like which the competition. was true. <laughs> yeah. And the other was that blow pops have gum in the middle and mm. gum was turning up in many of uh, the classrooms and hallways. And, huh. and so, but he encouraged us to keep doing things. And we did, we did, we did businesses, you know, little things, just hustling uh, all through high school and college. Hmm. Did you, uh, did you think about pivoting to like Tootsie Pops so that (laughs) that way there wasn't gum left over? (laughs) That's a good idea actually. Okay. So now you, you got shut down and, and the school sort of cemented their monopoly on, on the blow pop market. What did, and you, you continued hustling all throughout high school. So as you started to wrap up your high school career, were you expecting to go to college because that was sort of the traditional path, as you had mentioned before? Or were you instead looking to do something more uh, entrepreneurial as you had already had experience in that realm? Yeah, that's a great question because Joel and I actually, you know, there was no question that we were going to college. It was Mm -hmm. just uh, ingrained in our heads from an early age that that's the path you take. Yeah. So um, we both did that without, you know, even thinking about it. We knew we were going to college and I'm glad we did. Uh, I think we both grew up in different ways while we were there. Um, that said, you know, we weren't the best of students and we weren't engaged in our class classes and homework and all that kind of stuff the way many others were. Yeah. We were distracted by business ideas and, you know, all the same stuff that we loved doing in high school. And so we did do those sorts of things. Um, uh, but uh, I do think we, I think college was beneficial for the two of us just in terms of our, our growth. There was a time when I was a junior and I remember uh, I was home for some reason and I was speaking with my father and uh, I was frustrated. I I was just, I think I kind of had my fix of school and I was done with it. And I just said, you know, I don't think I want to go back to school. And, you know, I just, I don't feel in place there. You know, I'm not a good student. I'm not into the school work. Um, I just want to go out and do my own thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, my father was very encouraging. Um, he did encourage me to finish. I was so close, you know? Yeah. So I think that was kind of what got it over the hump. But he did say you could do whatever you want. And that was uh, a great, um, it was freeing okay. just to know I could do whatever I wanted. And he believed that I could. And um, I did go back. I was, I was a couple credits shy. I went to Albion College. It's okay. a small school here in Michigan, just outside of uh, about an hour west of Ann Arbor. And uh, I did go back. And um, as I was mentioning, I was just a couple credits shy. I was a political science major. And I remember going to uh, the head of the department. And uh, I said, can I finish up 
over at Eastern Michigan. And he said, well, your credits have to uh, be, the the credits are for your major. And so you've got to um, finish here at Albion. And I said, Dr. Levine, please let me do this. I'm not going to use this political science major. I'm not going to law school. I'm not going to do one thing with it. I'm going to start a business. And I I didn't even know I was, Mm -hmm. but I just, I, I just know I won't. I won't do you wrong. You'll be proud yeah, of me. Yeah. And, and, you know, I didn't think he was, I didn't think I had a shot, but he said, okay, you can finish up spring term at Eastern. I'll mm-hmm. make a, um, I'll, I'll make a concession here for you. And, and that's what I did. And thank you, Dr. Levine, um, <laughs> for doing that because um, it was, it was uh, again, very freeing to be able to just finish up and then venture out. Yeah. So now you mentioned that, you know, you're dealing sort of with this sunk cost bias to an extent where, you know, you committed so much time to school, you were so close to finishing. How do you, you f- figure out whether, you know, it is truly something you should finish because you've gotten this far and you're so close? And how do you decide when enough is enough? What, what do you think is the differentiator there? Mm. I don't think that there's a black and white answer to that question. I think you have to search inside yourself and um, listen to your heart. And I think sometimes we listen a lot to the to society and yeah. try to follow what may be considered the most conventional path. Um, but you know, you can always go back to school. I mean, there there's no wrong answer. There's so many things, uh, so many paths that we can go down and they're all full of wisdom. And I think if we're following our heart and being really in tune with it, um, and what I mean by that is being thoughtful about your decisions and not being knee jerk, you know, like, oh, I'm just not going to go back to school because it's just not suiting me. I'm losing my heart, you know, and then just shift. And then you're like, oh, I should have stayed in school. I'm going to go back, you know, and and you're kind of all over the place. You know, I think it, I think it's important to take time to reflect, you know, journaling is a great way to do that. Um, or just going and finding some quiet time. Um, I think that's hard for many people these days, you know, we're inundated with FOMO and, you know, uh, all the, you know, social media and TV shows and just all the things that, that are coming at us. Information overload. It is. And so, um, you know, I think just nowadays more than ever, it, it's 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 important to take a step back and listen to your heart and feel, check in, see how your body feels a little. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about going back to school, when you think about what it might mean if you don't go back to school, what you'd be doing and just picturing yourself in that day after day after day. Does your body feel excited? Does it start to feel a little drawn down? Like, oh, it was, the grass was greener, but now that I'm in it, it's not. It's not not even worse. Yeah, (laughs) it's dirt. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, I think that's the way I feel about that. Okay. So, so sort of examine and figure out what you're truly feeling and Mm -hmm. be willing to reflect and put some space between that decision and where you're at now. Yep. So, you, you, Originally started at Albion here in in Michigan. Yep. You then transferred to finish your last semester at Eastern Michigan. Yeah, you knew you were never really going to use that poli sci degree. So, what were your thoughts, or what 
what did you want to do next as you wrapped up and, and why did you want to stay at Eastern versus going back to Albion? Well, uh, actually, the short story is it was um, actually, I would have to go back to Albion for spring and summer term. Mm. And I just, Albion is a small school and there aren't many students there in the summer and the spring. Mm. So at Eastern, um, I could live in Ann Arbor with many of my friends who were much more uh, into school than I was. And, yeah. and, um, and they were at Michigan. And uh, um, and so that that's why I ended up doing okay. Eastern. But, um, you know, it was confusing because I, you know, was thinking what kind of job would I have and, you know, should I get a job and how would this, you, you know, and Joel and I were just always coming up with business saying, well, we could do this and we could do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you want me to tell a story how we got into what we did, but yeah. Joel um, also taking spring term read um, a uh, classified ad in the back of Entrepreneur Magazine. And uh, it was essentially um, uh, an ad that where you could go get trained on how to sell toner supplies for huh. a new technology called laser printers. Huh. Um, they were only about two years old. So I'm aging myself at 50. <laughs> I can't believe I'm 50. Um, so yeah, they were new and these toners needed to be replaced and somebody had to replace them. And yeah. so there's this company in Texas that was training um, people on how to kind of start these businesses. And so we went down there and our parents both gave us loans, $5,000 each. And uh, we learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. And we just started, we came back here to the Detroit area and and out of the basement, we just started hustling these toner cartridges. We'd walk around all the buildings and the suburbs and the city and, you know, uh, knock, literally knock on doors, no email or anything like that back then and mm-hmm. or internet. And yeah. you would just, you know, we would just cold call, you know, through door knocking and say, is the office manager here? We sell these toner supplies. We can do it at a discount. We're a local company, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, all your selling points. Yep, and they took mercy on us, many of them. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorites is actually, it was a company at the time called Rock Financial. Hmm. And they had um, about maybe close to 50 employees. Okay. And they had about uh, 10 laser printers. Hmm. And there was somebody there who took mercy on us and said, okay, we'll, we'll... we'll, um, use you to buy these toner cartridges. And, we did a nice job. We we worked very hard to make sure they were happy. Who could have imagined they'd turn into Quicken Loans and an entire mm. family of company that's still our customer 28 years later. Wow. It's insane. Yeah, you caught a, caught a big fish pretty early it on. It was crazy. So those early days of just door knocking, and, and it had to be tough. It was. So how did you guys push through because you're cold calling, you're door knocking. Mm. People who really have a million other things going on have to take a chunk of time to spend on you guys. How did you deal with, you know, having those rejections and weathering that that early day those early days when it can be very tough to get something off the ground? Well, there's a lot of ways I could probably answer that. Um, but I think that knowing that you're passionate about something. And for us, building something that was ours overrode all those, you know, sort of undesirable activities mm-hmm. that we had to do uh, because 
we were just trying to build a business and we never really built the business. We were hustling a lot and building a business was, it was a learning experience every single day. Hmm. Um, I'm glad I did it because now as I look back or even when I'm speaking with people in the company, I did that. I did that. I did every one of their jobs at some point because it was just Joel and myself. Yeah. And I think that has created uh, a lot of uh, empathy and understanding for me as a leader now because I've been in their shoes and I understand how it feels. Hmm. Okay. So now we're, we're in the early days mm-hmm. of, of your company. Did it have a name at that time? Yes, it did. It was called Laser Recharge. Okay. So it's you're a different name. Different name, early days of Laser Recharge. It was you and Joel as your, your business partner. Yep. It was you and Joel door knocking. Yep. How did you scale and how did you start to grow that company from the two of you into what it's starting to become uh, as time goes by? Okay, so we, in, I'm just going to go one step backwards to when we were in college and okay. I mentioned I lived in Ann Arbor during yeah. that semester. Um, we would visit friends in Ann Arbor all the time. Joel went to Eastern and so, uh, and he actually lived in Ann Arbor. And so we started going to this deli called Zingerman's Deli. So if you're from the Detroit area and you're familiar with Ann Arbor in any way, shape or form, you probably know or have heard of Zingerman's Deli, probably even been there. But at the time, uh, it was a very small space. They had just opened. They were like a year or two old, you Hmm. know, in terms of uh, their business. And, but one thing that we recognized was they just had this extraordinary way of servicing you. So you were going in to buy a sandwich, but it was an experience. And the people were just over the top. And Joel and I would go there. We just loved going there, actually much less for the food and more so for the experience because we'd sit there and we'd just watch. We wouldn't even be talking. We'd just be looking around and he's looking at this over there and he'd say, look at that. And I'd go, yeah, I know, but look over here and look at how that person's dealing with that problem and so on and so forth. And we would just say to ourselves, every time we thought about starting a business, we'd say, you know, we got to do it like Zingerman's, you know, Hmm. we got to do it like Zingerman's. So when we started the business, that's everything we thought about was we got to do it like Zingerman's, which meant taking care of the customer in a really authentic and genuine way from from the second they became a customer, even beforehand, Mm -hmm. you know, going over the top for them. And um, we loved it. We're, and we still do. We're so passionate about taking care. You know, you mentioned at the outset, delivering the X, these extraordinary experiences. Yeah. And um, we never want a customer uh, walking away. And, and like we, I always picture the customer at the dinner table and just being, oh, how was your day? Oh, it was so annoying. There's this, there's this vendor we have and there's such a pain. It like ruined my whole day. Yeah. I want it to be the opposite. I want them to say, how was your day? And say, well, it was a challenging day, but there was this one situation, <laughs> this company that handles our multifunction printers, like they did X, Y, or Z and like blew me out of the water, yeah. like made my day. So if we could do that and be thinking that way from, you know, the outset, um, it's a big difference maker. So that was what we were passionate about from from the very early days. And, and that's how we grew the business. It was really just taking great care of the customer. Joel and I had no idea how to run a business. In fact, I tell a story that for the first 10 years, we really had no 
way we were running the business. We were just kind of by the seat of our pants. I'm amazed that we got where we got. And upon reflection, um, I realize it is because we took such good care of the customers and cared so much. Otherwise, I really don't think we would have made it because everything else was kind of scattered. Okay. And it took us some time to get kind of organized and start running the business professionally, so to speak. Yeah, so you're now, you know from the get-go Whatever you're going to start, you're going to start at like Zingerman's. That's right. And now you're getting ready to bring on your first few employees. You're running things more professionally. What was it like to start actually building a team? And how, how did you find the right people that understood your mission and your commitment to providing those exceptional experiences? Well, the first 10 years, we couldn't. We didn't because we didn't know what our mission was. We didn't know what we were all about, except for taking great care of the customers. So when we were hiring, you know, we were looking for people that were competent and had the ability to do it, seem like good people. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it, something wasn't clicking. Something just wasn't clicking right. And literally about about 10 years in, I think it's actually a little less, maybe like eight or so, uh, we'd met this person named Gino Wickman. And Gino had created this process called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And he has a book that he writes about, and it's called Traction. And he came in and he taught us really where we were lacking, which was in many areas. And so, you know, first and foremost, we got really focused on what our core values were and um, starting to hire and and um, evaluate our team members based on those values. And that was a big game changer for us. Keeping in mind, and I want to keep saying it because we were running by the seat of our pants the first eight (laughs) years or whatever it was. So um, knowing with clarity our core values, knowing our core focus, our mission, um, knowing where we were going to be in 10 years in our heads, you know, kind of that big vision. Yeah. Um, and then kind of breaking it down into shorter uh, sprints, like where are we going to be in three years? Where are we going to be at the end of next year? And where are we going to be next quarter? Mm. And so we started to get on this rhythm and we were executing on it really well. That's all we needed. We just needed the blueprint, the system, you know, for um running a really solid business. And that's just one component of it, but I, I could go on and, and I will do that if you'd like me to, but that was one really key component for us. Yeah, so you essentially had to find what metrics you needed to measure yourself against and that being your core values and now chunking those down into performance benchmarks. Yeah. How do you think that impacted you as a company and where where was sort of uncomfortable territory for you to venture into once you had those performance metrics? Well, initially it was really hard because we had good people who maybe we started to realize weren't uh, in alignment with our values. Hmm. Again, good people, just different value sets. And it was, you know, we had to make changes based on that, obviously giving fair chance and it wasn't like bulldozing through, you yeah. know, we're, we're compassionate people. And so we had to work together to figure things out when people weren't core value matches, or sometimes they were really great core value matches, but they just weren't really great at their job. And we had to recognize that and be a little bit more high performance minded and realize that when somebody wasn't great at their job, they were just good at it. It was actually affecting the entire performance of the company and making things harder for everybody else. So we went through a short period of time where there, it was, there was a lot of changes that we had to make. And those, that was a hard time. Um, but 
we knew and trusted in our heart that these were the right things we needed to do. And when we were able to get really clear about it and the company was running really well, um, we had a really unique circumstance happen. And this was about four or five years into working with the EOS process. Um, and a public company approached us and they were very interested in our, um, our the way we were going to market, the way we were doing things with yeah. our clients. And um, they made an offer to acquire a company. Hmm. Now, receiving an offer has to be sort of a, an unexpected, pleasant surprise because, you know, it seems like from the outset, you were just looking to build something very powerful. Um, so did you wind up accept, accepting that that acquisition offer, or did you instead choose to continue building things in the way that you were because you now had proof that what you were doing was big and what you were doing was very, very valuable? So for you know us and for myself personally, <clears throat> usually takes like a big boulder to hit me in the head to figure <laughs> things out. Yeah. And I'm still like that. Okay. Um, I'm always looking for the lessons. <laughs> and so we did accept the um, offer and we were then uh, part of a very large public company. Uh, and Joel and I were running Image One. We had changed the name along the way to Image One. Okay. And we were running Image One as a what's called a wholly owned subsidiary. And... Um, it was a great vision, actually. They had 500 salespeople and we were going to train them on our products and services and then they should be able to go out and sell them. But uh, as Gino Wickman says, vision without execution is hallucination. Hmm. And um, so there was some, some hallucination taking place on all sides. And so the, the execution wasn't there. So um, this company had gone through a round of uh, executive changes. Yeah. A new CEO came in about 18 months after the acquisition. And he contacted us and said, this isn't part of my vision. Uh, would you guys like to buy it back? And we, we were interested and we did, we did buy it back. So huh. it was about an 18 month situation. Stint. Yeah, yeah. Stint. yeah. So this is maybe a, a bit of a granular question. And I know sometimes you can't get into the details mm -hmm. when you, so they, they wholly acquired you, and this at, at the time I'm guessing was like a 50-50 business ownership uh, between you and Joel of Image One when yes. it was acquired. Yep. Did you guys have to put all that capital up to buy the company back from, uh, from this publicly traded company? How did you repurchase uh, essentially your baby that you helped grow. So they paid us some cash up front and then one, uh, they had a, uh, three payments that they owed us and we forgave two of them. Hmm. So we didn't have to take any cash out, but okay. we just forgave the two payments huh. and we just took over the company. Took the company huh. back, yeah. That's kind of cool. So they owed you money and it you was, sort of like washed it away and said, Call it even. Yeah, that's right. And then we did have the initial cash and the initial payment that mm -hmm. we had received. So um, that was, quite frankly, just dumb luck. You know, wow. I couldn't. You couldn't have scripted that. Yeah, and we were we were just lucky. Yeah, you know? there's no better outcome than that, right? It there. was a decent outcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you have you have your baby back. Yeah. Um, and you're you're growing your company again. Did you have to make a lot of changes after that 18-month period with this large publicly traded company? Or was it sort of just kind of clicking things back into the gear that they were in before? Well, back to the boulder. So boulder hitting <laughs> me in the head. So one of the cool things that happened was we realized that this quest to be big 
wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And um, while we still wanted to grow the company and, you know, whatever big means, it didn't have to be like take over the world big. And we, uh, right around the time we were reacquiring the business, uh, somebody had sent me a book called Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. And that was written by some uh, an author uh, by the name of Bo Burlingham. And, um, and essentially what Uh, he had done, he's a former editor of Inc. Magazine. And what he had done is he had crisscrossed the country and found all these sort of under the radar companies that were just killing it. They They were so focused on their culture, the totality of their team members' lives, lifting them up, giving them a really unique experience within their company, um, really focused on the community um, and making a difference and making a mark in the community around them. There were founders that were really clear about why they were in business and what they wanted out of business. And uh, as I'm reading through, I was kind of skimming through the book, actually. I wasn't intending on reading it, Mm -hmm. but I saw Zingerman name in there <laughs> and there was a whole chapter on Zingerman so wow. I read through that and I was like wow this is I didn't even know all I all that was written about Zingerman's and yeah. I went back and I read the book and you know there was companies like this company in Minnesota that makes laptop hinges huh. you know and they had a, a hundred employees and it was like this amazing <laughs> place to work Yeah, and you know like who makes laptop hinges who's even thinking about that yeah. but here's this amazing company that nobody heard of and I thought you know we could be like that like, boom there's your boulder <laughs> yeah right yeah, that's what it was so Joel read it and we talked and we said let's stay focused on chipping away at becoming a small giant hmm. and following the path that we've seen many of these companies follow. Wow. So you sort of focused in on what being a big company meant for you versus, you know, these these massive publicly traded companies mm-hmm. that you were for for an 18-month span a part of. Right. How has that shaped what Image One has become over the last, you know, few years. Uh, how long has it been since you sort of reacquired? It was thirteen years ago. Thirteen so years. Ago. Okay. So how has how has that impacted? Uh, how Image One has grown over the last, you know, thirteen years. It was, it's been huge. There, and he, I'll just share a little bit more about the story and how we think of things as sort of how the universe comes together. So, um, right that summer of '06, after we had acquired the company back, uh, I got a call from Zing Train, hmm. Zingerman's Deli had cre- started to create other businesses within their. Um, within their umbrella. Their umbrella. Okay. And they one of them was training companies on how to provide great customer service. And we mm-hmm. used to send people to that um, workshop. Yeah. And they decided to create one on, on visioning. And the managing partner, Maggie Bayless, who's still there, um, contacted me and said, oh, you've sent many people to the customer service workshop. We're doing this one on visioning. I'd like to invite you to come. Mm-hmm. And so I... I decided to go. And while I was at the workshop, Ari Weinsweg, who's one of the founders of Zingerman's, was teaching it. And I got to spend a little bit of time with him and just share my gratitude for what he had inspired me to, a way of thinking that he had inspired at an early age, um, just through my experience at the deli. And then I was sitting, or I was standing at, at lunch in line 
to order uh, food, and I struck up a conversation with this uh, gentleman, and he was very curious and inquisitive. And to make a long story short, it turned out to be the author of Small Giants, Bo Burlingham. Hmm. And we kind (laughs) of developed a mini connection during the workshop. Um, And uh, when we parted ways, exchanged information, et cetera, he contacted me about six months later. And he said, Rob, I've met uh, about a dozen kind of Robs around the country. And I have this idea. I'd like to create a group where I take you guys to visit all these small giant companies that I wrote about in the book. And there's like 10 times more Hmm. that I couldn't fit in the book. And I'd like to, you know, while we're in a city, we'll go visit like the one in the book and then we'll visit two more. And so we started doing that twice a year. Have a Rob Fest of all the Robs across the country. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, he he considered our company sort of an emerging small giant. Okay. And, and, what, and that's what he had recognized, these other Robs, quote unquote, around the country, is that there was a spark and it just needed to, you know, uh, get some air to kind of Fan create a fire. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he somehow had the wisdom to try to put this group together and, you know, help lift us up, really give back to us. And so we got together in San Francisco for our first meeting and visited some different companies and I'd been doing this, and I still do it um, for every you know for 13 years. And every time I would go, every time I go, I'm just looking for little nuggets. These are simple things that I can bring back to Image One and incorporate into our business without much fanfare, yeah. you know. And we're almost people are, don't almost notice, you know. Um, but but then over time, it starts to build up and you start to notice because Small you're tweaks. like, wow, this is a really unique company. Like there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Um, but somehow I realized that it took, it was going to take time and a lot of patience. And I do have that, uh, those qualities. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, you know, that was a real turning point back to your question about, you know, 06 and, you know, maybe what things we would do differently, kind of having the baby back. And that was intentional because yeah. we wanted to create a really special culture. Yeah. And uh, it really became all about the people huh. and what can we do every day to make their day. Like, that's my focus. What can I do to make their day? Um, can I keep going on this or? Yeah, we, okay. got, we got a little more time okay. for it. So, because there was one other really important turning point and you be having an accounting degree will will uh, probably appreciate <laughs> this. So, okay. in, in um, everything was going along, we were growing, it was, it was all wonderful and roses and all that. And then in 2014, um, we uh, had helped one of our large customers save a great deal of money through an initiative that we created. And it took off in a much faster and better way than we anticipated. Yeah. And we were actually in 2014, actually it was 2013, we were actually looking at potentially the first year we might lose money ever in the entire history of our company Wow! because of this situation. And, um, we, I remember there were three of us sitting in the conference room and we were trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. And because we just weren't accustomed to being in this situation. It was about six months through. Well, uh, going back, one of the trips that Bo had taken me on was to Springfield, Missouri to meet uh, a person by the name of Jack Stack. Okay. And Jack um, essentially is 
the one of the creators of open book finance hmm. and he taught us what he created uh, what he calls the great game of business he has a whole system around this there's a whole workshop around it and we kind of um, resisted it over the years the idea of opening up our books to our employees we call them team members um, you know just well what would they think and, yeah. and Jack's whole philosophy around it is <clears throat> your team members already think that the company's making way more money than it is. And what's the negative to empowering them with really solid information about the company so they can actually make better decisions to help the bottom line improve? And then when the bottom line improves, why wouldn't you, uh, why wouldn't you uh, allow them to benefit from that financially? Yeah. And it just, now I look back on it and it just makes so much sense to me. Hmm. Like it's the way it should be. That's there should be no secrets. And one of our core values, funny enough, from day one, um, when we created our values was being open and honest, transparent, hmm. humble, and authentic. And yet we weren't doing that. Yeah. And it was starting to drive me nuts. And in 2013, when we were sitting around trying to figure it out, I said to the guys, you know, of course we can't figure it out because we're not in tune with all the, you know, all the goings on on the front line, so to speak. Yeah, we're not pulling in the experts. That's right. And, and the, the team members are the experts and they're not armed with the information to make better decisions. Yeah. And so we decided to implement the great game of business in the company. And um, we at, collectively as a company in a very short period of time, we actually turned it around very quickly that year. We made a profit. Everybody benefited from it. Hmm. And every year since, our profits have really gone up quite wow. significantly. And that has everything to do with the team making better decisions. And because they understand the business the way I understand it now, yeah. they know how to read an income statement. They know how to read a balance sheet. I, I can't just tell you, and you'll, you're going to learn this as you work with startup companies and yeah. stuff. Uh, most people don't know how to read an income statement and a balance sheet. They think they do but they actually don't. And I'm talking founders of companies and nothing against them. Um, you know, they're just out there like I was, you know, you're, you're trying to get your product to market mm -hmm. and sell it and, you know, hopefully make a buck. Um, yeah. But to really dive into, you know, like what's a balance sheet mean and why does it tell me I'm healthy or I'm not healthy as a company? And when your employees can start to also understand that and you show them the balance sheet month after month after month in the income statement, then they start thinking, hmm. How can we be healthier? How can we make more money? Yeah. Because they're engaged. Yeah. They're part of the decision-making process. You, it's fully collaborative. Yeah. So, you know, I, you can tell I get kind of excited about yeah. it because I've seen the light bulbs <clears throat> all over the place. And yeah. we have people all over the country. And these are people making amazing decisions and recognizing when they didn't make good decisions and being able to shift it quickly. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are some really important uh, things I've learned along the way and resources that your listeners can gravitate to. Go buy The Great Game of Business. It's a book. Go buy Small Giants. It's a book. Go buy Traction. It's a book. And the formula is right there for you. Yeah. Fascinating. So now, I, before we get into our quick hits, I want to want to touch on something else that we mentioned at the beginning of the show and have sort of been alluding to throughout our conversation. Uh, you're the founder of sort of the Do Nothing movement, which is all about meditation and mindfulness. So 
Can you give us the quick kind of rundown of how you came across meditation and mindfulness and what about it stuck with you? Uh, Because you've been meditating for what, 15 years consistently, uh, avidly now. How did you come across the concept? Well, I had a lot of anxiety in my life growing up and uh, that translated into my leadership style when Joel and I started the business. Of course, Mm -hmm. being in business with your best friend is much different than being best friends. You know, being best friends is hanging on the couch and cracking up. You know, being in business is making decisions about money and direction and hiring. And, you know, it was just completely different. So, you know, that in, in addition to, you know, all the things that happen in life, I just wasn't dealing with anxiety well. Um, I did go to therapy for many years and I found it to be really helpful. I got to learn about like cause and effect and things of that nature, but it didn't seem to lessen my anxiety. Um, and I think I was just like, um, you know, searching, but not knowingly. And so certain things would kind of come into my consciousness, maybe something I read or something like that. And I had read, in this case, I had read an article about meditation. It was on the cover of Time Magazine back in the um, early 2000s. And uh, I was on vacation with my family and I was going, it was, we were, uh, that was after we had sold and I worked for this bigger company and I was just really on edge and there was just something going on. We were on vacation and I was like so frustrated and I was practically, I was getting ready to just like all out cry. I'm yeah. sitting there, I was like, I'm going to just start bawling right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that article and I just said, well, somehow I said in my you know, mind, go sit over there in this chair and just breathe in and breathe out for like five minutes, set a timer and just do it and just see if that's helpful or something. And I did it and I, and I actually felt a little bit better. It, it definitely didn't uh, take away my frustrations or my challenges or anything like that. I just felt like calmer. Yeah. And so I thought maybe there's something to this. I did a lot of research. I'm a big fact finder. So I had to like figure it all out and make sure, you know, this, that, and the other to make sure it seemed right for me. I totally overanalyzed it, by the way. It's the most simple thing in the world. And, um, and uh, I started to take on a practice of meditating every single day. Um, and I noticed, I started to notice a difference. One other thing I started to do, which to many people sounds really almost like, what? I can't believe that, is I started going on uh, silent meditation retreats. And um, I had learned about it, I'd read about it in my research that these retreats could be very useful. So I went for a one-day retreat and I was so scared. I was so geared up. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to talk for an entire day. I can't look at my phone or anything. Like, wow, I was very intimidated by it. But I found it to be really ama- an amazing experience. And so I thought, I think I could do this a little bit longer. And so I went on a seven-day silent retreat and it was amazing. And I could get into it if you want me to, and I won't if you don't. I don't. I want to take it down the path you want to go to. But the silent retreats have been very beneficial. I've, I've started to do those um, twice a year, seven days, wow. at least seven days at a time. And then I created my own silent retreat so people could get a taste of it. Hmm. And it's all leaders that come. They're they're entrepreneurs or leader in leadership positions, and they come to start to understand uh, the practice of meditation in, in the type that we teach is a secular practice, meaning there is no religious con- connotation. It's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Okay. It's created at the University of Massachusetts by a person by the name of John Kabat-Zinn. And, um, and it's a widely used practice hmm. uh, all over the world to help with anxiety. Wow. So then can you give us the quick basics of do nothing? So if there were 
don't know, your, your three steps or your three uh, core components of do nothing. Could you give us sort of the overview of, of what you've created? Sure. So uh, somebody encouraged me at one point to, uh, they were asking me a lot of questions about my journey and the retreats. And they said, oh, that's, that could be like a book. And I never had thought about that. And, um, and uh, so I, I got thinking about it. And so I wrote the, the book about it. Um, one person along the way, I kind of joked and said, what do you do on those retreats? Like, you just sit around, do nothing. And then we were joking, you should call your book that. <laughs> so one thing led to another and, and I called the book, Do Nothing. Um, and I wasn't really sure where the book would take me. I yeah. was very open to the possibilities. And um, I knew that I would love to do a retreat that was uh, a, a, a uh, that was focused on leaders and where they would feel more comfortable coming into the container that I create because I'm them. I, I, I'm in their shoes. I understand yeah. what their thought processes are. And so um, I decided to do it. I decided wow. to create the retreat and uh, we're going on our third year this April. And, um, and then I decided to do the podcast and um, the podcast has been re- very rewarding. I'm, I'm speaking with other entrepreneurs who are similar in mindset. And I'm just trying to share with other, uh, with the listeners, um, the idea that you can build a very intentional company and you don't have to get caught up in all the other stuff that, you know, gets reported and, you know, all the exciting this, that, and the others, unless you want to, but you don't have to, you can build like a really solid, amazing business that cares deeply for the people. And if you're wired that way, you're going to hear tips from all these different entrepreneurs. And in addition to that, uh, people who are really focused on, um, health and wellness, which I have learned again, Boulder, um, that, (laughs) that, um, you know, what makes us our best each day um, is is actually quite simple, but hard to execute on. Uh, we actually did a collaborative discussion in our company and we came up what we call, with what we call the simple six. These are the six things in our life that we all know we should do, but for some reason, they're so hard to do. And it okay. starts with a meditation practice, which is just really centering yourself every day for any short period of time um, and focusing in and getting in tune with the present moment and what matters most. Um, the next thing is getting enough sleep. I mean, hello, I, no one's going to argue with me <laughs> that you need more sleep. You yeah. need to get enough sleep. And 85% of our team members were getting six hours or less wow. in sleep uh, per, per day. Um, the next thing is proper nutrition. You know, we all know we need to eat better, um, but it's difficult to do. And so how can we be more mindful about that? Um, Movement, you know, just getting out, taking a walk, like you had mentioned to me before, you had walked over here maybe three, four, or five blocks. Mm-hmm. You know, you ride your bike a lot. That's movement, you know, just things like that. It doesn't have to be going to the gym and becoming, you know, wet, shredded. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to, great, you know, yeah. but just get up, move, don't be sedentary. You get off the couch, take your dog for a walk, whatever the things are. Um, and then the next piece to it is, um, is, uh, expressing gratitude. It's a very simple practice. Um, you can do gratitude journals. There's there's apps for that. Uh, that you can do a gratitude app. You can, you know, it literally takes like 20 seconds to just close your eyes and, or write in a journal something that you're grateful for. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, these are some of the simple things that we talk about, um, you know, 
but are hard to do. So we're just trying to be lifter uppers and say, how can we focus on these things a little bit more? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe we'll show up better each day for the people around us. Hmm. Love it. And with that, we are going to switch into our quick hitters. So first, what is one of the key takeaways from your career or project so far? Something that you've learned that you were kind of surprised by? Well, I think, um, uh, I think, you know, paying attention to the signs is what I think about when I reflect is just that I feel we did that. We paid attention to the signs. We knew when we were struggling and we found resources and we weren't afraid to ask. So, you know, that would be something that, you know, I would encourage people to do. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask for help and keep looking, keep searching. Love it. Uh, number two, what is the one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? Um, you are nothing, but you're everything. Hmm. So, um, you know, we get very caught up in our minds and our own little bubbles and worlds about what we think we are or want to be or should be or whatever. And, and you know, my advice to myself is, you know, really it, it's it's... It's it's all nothing. It's all not all that meaningful. What is meaningful is that we are everything because we're all interconnected, yeah. both as people and to the world, to the earth. Right. And so that would be my advice. Love it. What is one book or resource that has helped you in your journey? Well, I think the all the books I mentioned, <laughs> I, I have to say, and, and I'll add to it, which is um, Ari Weinsweg's books on being a great leader, on visioning, on, um, on uh, uh, one drawing blank, but it might come to me, but you can go online and see all his manifestos. Um, they are beautifully written and very commonsensical. So I highly recommend um, all the Ari Weinswag's books. Love it. And Rob, where can people learn more about you? The best place is do nothing book dot com and uh, you can contact me there through the form. Uh, you can also go on to social LinkedIn and Twitter and all those kinds of things um, and you can connect with me there. Love it. Rob Dubay, co-founder and president of Image One, author of Do Nothing. Thanks for coming on the show. Ben, thank you so much and all the best to you with uh, all your endeavors. I love it. Appreciate it. Same to you. Okay. And that does it for our show with Rob Dubay. Uh, now, I really like that meditation and mindfulness overall took such an important role in his story because it's something that I've seen pay dividends in my life. And so knowing how we're feeling and what we're feeling allows us to understand what's going on around us and figure out what our best pathway forward is. Now, Rob outlined this concept of listening to yourself, and he said, look, the worst case scenario if you choose to do something is you just go back. You can admit you're wrong and go back to what you were doing before. So if a new career path doesn't work out, you always have the skill set of the career path that you left. Or if you leave a job to go somewhere new and try something out, if you don't burn the bridge and you keep a relatively good relationship with them, they may be willing to bring you back if your new adventure doesn't pan out. I'm also a big fan of this concept of you're nothing, but you're also everything. Because in our world, there's seven plus billion people, right? And so in the grand scheme, we're not that significant. 
But at the same time, in our personal world, in, in the world that's running between our ears, we're everything. We're the entirety of our world to ourselves. And so we need to understand that we have a place in this bigger picture. And in our own individual stories, we're the protagonists. He also used a really good example of a deli based here uh, in, in Michigan, which is called Zingerman's. And he said from, from the beginning, look, we have to do it like Zingerman's, where we take care of the customer because that's how we do best. And that's how we run a successful business. And it puts the customer in their needs first. So rather than saying, hey, how do we drive profits this quarter? How do we cut costs? Whatever. How do we create a better experience for the customer? Because at the end of the day, that's going to drive significantly higher returns than any cost-cutting measure that we could make individually. That does it for this week's show. Uh, I do want to take a quick second. I don't know if you know, but uh, yesterday was kind of a big holiday. Uh, So (laughs) wishing all of you a very Merry Christmas. To those of you that celebrate Kwanzaa, uh, that kicks off today. Happy Kwanzaa. And I think I missed Hanukkah, but to anyone who celebrated Happy Hanukkah, hope you had uh, an opportunity to spend some time with your families. Cheers, guys. From Taste for Tenacity, show number 35. This is Ben Trella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>